you know, those defining moments that you have. I was at a dinner at a professor's house and it was all MIT, Harvard and Boston University economics professors around the table. Mm -hmm. And they were talking that night about what was going to be the impact of the impending gasoline tax in Peru on the economy. And I sat there and I watched. And I watched the internal computers just start calculating. So I just said, excuse me, excuse me. What's going to be the impact on the poorest of the poor, on the marginal populations? And Achim, it was one of those moments. There used to be an advertisement when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. And everybody stopped. They looked at me. And then they continued talking. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am so delighted to welcome Ellie Koss to the My Fourth Act podcast. Ellie is a Renaissance woman. She holds a PhD in economics and has served as an educator and management consultant for more than three decades. She is also an author, an artist, an activist, and a coach. In every aspect of her life, Ellie pushes the limits to draw out life's essence and fullness and to surface the extraordinary. Ellie divides her time between homes in San Francisco and Cape Cod. And today, as we record this conversation, Ellie is on a two-month sojourn in Ecuador, where she also has a home. And I want to talk <laughs> all about that. Uh, welcome, Ellie. Thank you, Achim. Thank you for having me. This is really a pleasure and an honor. I appreciate it. It is a pleasure. I was just thinking, gosh, that was a very cosmopolitan introduction I just gave you, right? Uh, <laughs> I think when I end up talking about magic and beauty in places, and you're blessed to live in some stunning places, but before we go there, when you're a young girl or teenager growing up and somebody asked you, Ellie, what do you want to do when you grow up? What was on your mind? There were two answers to that. I want to be a baseball player. Uh-huh. And I want to be a nuclear physicist. Those were the two things I wanted. Yeah. I mean, body and mind. The nuclear physics went out the window with chemistry in high school. The baseball never went out the window. But as you know, at the time I was growing up, girls didn't play baseball. They were not allowed to play in Italy. My brother got to play. I didn't get to play. Yeah. Even as early as fifth grade, I remember the last, sixth grade, the last day of sixth grade, we had a picnic. And the boys wouldn't let the girls play. And they hit a ball into the outfield. So I ran and got it. And I wouldn't give it back to them until they let me play. Okay, but it gets better. Ahim, it gets better because, you know, the sports weaves in and out of my whole life. And then when I was in college and graduate school, I would go back to Lexington where I grew up on the weekends. And we would play baseball, softball. And I remember one time, and I was the pitcher. It was slow pitch, high arc. Mm -hmm. 
my friend Doug Fox gets up there and goes, Ellie, give me something I can hit. I said, okay, Dougie, for you, I'll give you something you can hit. So he hits a home run. And then I'm thinking, I'm remembering this. I'm remembering this. Then I was injured playing lacrosse. And it was probably about five or six weeks later, I came up and I had to be the first. He had to be the first batter up. I had to bring two balls out to the mound because he never swung at the first pitch. So the only people that knew what was going to go on was me, myself, and the catcher. And I went up with a grapefruit painted white and a softball. So the first pitch was a softball. Dougie almost swung at it, but he didn't. And then I threw the softball. I think before it crossed the plate, I was on the ground laughing hysterically. He hits it. And if you've ever seen a softball explode, they absolutely disintegrate. So he's looking out in the outfield. The boys on the, in my infield, one of them, my shortstop, thinks the ball's coming to him. And I'm just lying there hysterical. I got even. And that's, you know, it's kind of in my baseball, playing baseball. Is the moral of the story that you, Ellie, have been an instigator for a long time? You know it. The tag on my business cards is a shit disturber with a purpose. I love that story. Hearing baseball, softball, I'm hearing physicists. But I marvel at the fact that you ended up getting a PhD in economics, which, again, through my lens, that would friggin' terrify me. So what drew you to that? So as an undergraduate, I created my own major. And my major was in international comparative studies focused around development. I was very, very captivated by development around the world globally. And it's like, okay, whether it's social, political, economic. At that time, I was also interested. One of my gifts is I see things in numbers that other people don't. I have a gift for mathematics, and I'm a nerd at heart. I wanted to get a PhD in mathematical models and political science. Try to say that three times. Yeah, really. (laughs) I can't. But even at MIT, they didn't have that. They only had like one course there. I sent away for my applications in political science, and I sent them back in in economics. I said, oh, I'll do economics. It was kind of on a whim. In my mind, with a PhD in economics, that tends to predispose people towards some kind of academic or think tank career. Is that where you went? Yes. I was moving into the academic. In my heart, I'm an educator, whether it was teaching swimming as a teenager. I love educating in the literal sense of educate means comes from the educare to draw out from within. And the subject matter at the end of the day doesn't matter. You can use anything, anything, any example you want. So yes, I started in academia in economics, and then I morphed into organizational leadership and transformation because, again, it was like one of those moments when, you know, those defining moments that you have? I was a dinner at a professor's house, and it was all MIT, Harvard, and Boston University economics professors around the table. And they were talking night about What was going to be the impact of the impending gasoline tax in Peru on the economy? And I sat there and I watched. 
And I watched the internal computers just start calculating. I just said, excuse me, excuse me, what's going to be the impact on the poorest of the poor, on the marginal populations? And Ahim, it was one of those moments. There used to be an advertisement when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. I remember it, yeah. And everybody stopped. They looked at me, and then they continued talking. It was as if they could not embrace, they could not wrap their head or their heart around what's going to be the human impact of what they're talking about. And at about that time, I had the privilege of meeting Warren Bennis, who was working on transformative leadership. So I started morphing, and I was very fortunate in my academic careers. I was able to convince the schools, whether it was Bentley College or whether it was UMass Lowell, to let me also teach in management and develop really innovative courses. <laughs> you know? So here's where my mind is going. And I just, for our listeners, Ellie and I hung out socially, so I know a little bit about you. But I'm learning some things that I didn't know before. I also know that part of your brand or part of your slogan is that you like to dismantle the box. Yes. When I think of university teaching, I think of lots of rules and regulations and things you have to follow and and lots of committee meetings and lots of approvals. And I'm going, how did you navigate that playground? I didn't. (laughs) At UMass Lowell, my first year there, the president, because somebody recommended, put me on a committee uh, to serve on a committee on the impact of the freshman year and how you could bolster retention through the freshman year. I was the most junior person, and everybody else is talking about, oh, what can we get? And I said, no, 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 no. Let's go to what do we want? And I kept pushing this conversation. People that had like 10, 20 years more tenure, this all cost me tenure because this was was about action. In the end, we recommended 21 things and 20 got funded. The only thing that didn't get funded was a ropes course. But it was a real lesson. And I had been researching and writing about and working on of, of the power of vision and the power of aligning action with vision and values. So, no, I didn't. It cost me, you know, my not navigating because I am not a rule follower in that yeah. sense. You're absolutely right about that. It cost me getting tenure. But my sense is the more rules we break if we're lucky we find allies and we have our own tribe and we're a tribe of rule breakers if we become marginalized then we become the outsider and whatever frustrations people have can be projected and dumped onto us if we're put into the outsider box which is another box i you're absolutely right about that you know who my allies were which is highly unusual for academia, were the students, the learners, and the administration. The other academics, no. (laughs) I mean, you know, I taught economic development, and I woke up in the middle of the night before one year, and I said, you know, I can teach everything I know about development, but unless these kids go to a developing country, because they're first-generation New Englanders who've never been out of New England, they're not going to get it. So for two years running, we went to the Dominican Republic for a week, and they had to raise the money so every student who wanted to go could go. 
And I had faculty members. The first year we had a card partially donated. And it was like, well, what are you going to do if you don't raise the money? And it was like, I wanted to say, gee, thanks, loads. And I would just say, we will raise the money. I have faith in these kids. I mean, to this day, I'm still in communication with a lot of students that I've had over the years because they were my allies. I mean, when you can get somebody to enjoy, enjoy learning statistics, so there's something I did right. Because you are a visionary, and uh, we'll talk about other aspects of your life in a moment, but, but I'm also thinking, so are there academic institutions, universities, places of higher learning where you go, oh yeah, this is what it can be? Or are there places in the world where Ellie thinks, yeah, they got this right, or are, are most of them, in your mind, in some way constraining learning by uh, being overly rule process driven? I think there are pockets where they're getting there. I've cultivated a relationship with the current Dean of Arts and Sciences at Boston University. I have his ear. When that whole thing came down about the admissions, you know, from the Supreme Court, and my reaction was the antith of everybody else. I said, oh, how cool. Now, no boxes. No boxes. And you can ask compelling questions to get a more diverse population, a more robust population. And I was having lunch with Stan the next day. I laid it out for him. I said, you're just going to have to triple the budget now for admissions because it's going to be more one-on-one and really probing and asking like, what was the most defining moment in your life? Things like that, that will get at real honest diversity. And he said, oh my God, I wish I had talked to you before I send an email out to my staff. It's like, I said, well, you can send another email out now. I think there are pockets, Ahim, just like there are pockets in public and private education where they are beginning to do things, in my opinion, right, of really focusing, being learner-centered. But at the end of the day, the rules and the regulations I push back against it even from outside. I can't answer that question by saying, yes, definitively, there is this program or that program. It still comes down to being the focus of who is the educator. And I think we had the conversation. If everybody learned, you've you've read The Tao of Space, of holding space. It's a magnificent document. If what we shared with all educators from K through 20 whatever was how to hold space for the learners, I think to me that would be the most critical success factor because it takes you out of it. I'm thinking, because I want to talk a little more about being in the box breaking the box, destroying the box, getting out of the box. And I want to ask you, and I'm thinking about myself, but also for our listeners, no matter how curious we think we are about life in the world, sometimes without knowing it, we end up in a box for a while, right? It happened not always 
chosen by us. It just happens and our box becomes a little too small. And how do you know for yourself, Ellie, when it's time for you to move on from something, when you go, I'm done with this, I don't need to be in this particular, I'm going to use the box as a more metaphor. How do you know that it's time to move on? It's a really, really good question. And I'm just kind of reflecting on some of the decisions I've made over the last decade. So for instance, I spend a lot more time now on Cape Cod as opposed to in San Francisco. San Francisco is beautiful. I'm not going to argue that in a heartbeat. And as beautiful as the natural scenery is, there is a sense of community lacking. Now, Cape Cod's not so shabby. (laughs) Yet what I have on the Cape is real sense of community. What I have experiencing here in Ecuador is community, whether it's the local Ecuadorians or some of the expats here, is that sense of community of, oh, you don't, do you have any food for dinner? No, come on over. Oh, do you need a ride here? We're going here. Do you need a ride? Things like that, it's, are priceless. Having, you know, kind of an arc of ages and diversity and, you know, whatever really makes life fuller. For me, I think it's when I start stopping to notice if I'm getting depressed. And I don't mean clinically depressed, but really like I'm not happy. I mean, I could I can find things in any situation that will bring me happiness. But is there this underlying current I'm I'm not happy? I think if I look back, there have been a lot of times where I've acted on that later than I would have liked. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. I want to add a whole, there's so many layers to what you do, Ellie, because we've talked about Ellie, the educator and nerd. (laughs) But I also know you as an artist as a studio who creates work, who photographs, who exhibits on the Cape, maybe other places I only know from the Cape. And that may seem antithetical to the woman who has the PhD in economics. So where does that desire of curiosity come from? One, we're living in turbulent times. There's no question about that. Second thing is, I've always taken pictures. I was taking pictures in high school. I was taking pictures in college. People used to say, you know, when are you going to do more of that? And so now it became time to do more of it. What I started noticing, it probably started somewhat with COVID, but after COVID and with all the turbulence that we're going through, is when I would go out and I would watch the sunset every day, all of that would melt away. It's this notion of being in nature. So for some people, it's being in the woods. Other people, it's walking along the beach. For me, it's the sunsets over the marsh. 
I started going out to exactly the same place every day and taking pictures. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to just post these and see if people will take that moment out of their lives. Because I just started noticing the noise, the fear, the outrage that so many people express on an ongoing basis. And it's like asking that question, how do you shut that up? And I don't mean shut people up, but how do you stop that noise? And I found for me, it has been as simple as being in nature. And so I started posting those pictures. Pretty soon people are like, oh my God, I love this. Oh my God, I love this. You need to have a show. You need to do this. You need to do that. So this summer, I had a show of almost two years, a hundred sunsets. Okay. And I could have had a thousand on there. There's also so much I love about what you just said, but also I think we live in a society where people are maybe overly strategic. And you're just describing what I would call emergence and how something yes. emerged and it grew and people responded to it and became something else. But it came out of a deep inner interest, need, desire that you had. Yeah, it was not strategic. It wasn't like this calculated, oh, I'm going to do this. Oh, I'm going to post this. It was more of, let me post it. And then I started noticing, wow, people are just eating this up in a in a soulful way, yeah. in a now, soulful way. Now, somebody who doesn't know you could be listening to this conversation going, well, this woman, Ellie, costs probably a wealthy socialite. You know, she has this, this, she has a place in San Francisco. She has a place on the Cape. We'll, we'll talk about Ecuador in a moment. The Ellie I know, you live in a beautiful house on the Cape, but it's a simple house in the woods. It's homey, but not grand. Yeah. And, uh, so maybe just describe, because the simplicity to your life, would you describe that a little bit and you know, give us a snapshot of what your house and everyday life on the Cape looks like for you? Let's start with color. Let's start with color. Let's start with color. It's important for me to have color in my home. And one of the things I'm doing here in Ecuador, in our home here, is is slowly transforming it because we it just was finished in April. It was all white, and I'm slowly transforming it into colors. For me, it's always finding ways to bring color into the home, to feel a warmth in the home, like the home is going to take care of you, and at the same time my homes, they're not formal. So people can just come in, they can plop on the sofa. I may make them take their shoes off, but they can plop on the sofa. It's like no standing on ceremony. It's important the house is a home. Now, what called you, and I'm going to also mention your wonderful husband, Oscar. What called you and Oscar to Ecuador? How did Ecuador show up in your life? This is one of those defining moments for sure. I would love to learn about it. During COVID, as other people did, I took to scrolling through Instagram. And the first thing I bought on Instagram was some jewelry, was some earrings. The next thing I bought on Instagram was some clothing. And then I bought, we bought a house. I bought a house on Instagram. <laughs> no, no, stop. Explain, please. I am. I am backing up. Okay. So. I stumble on 
this feed on Instagram for a community called Oceanside Farms in a little place called Puerto Cayo in Ecuador. And I looked at it and I'm scrolling. It's a it's a new community that's built around a little sustainable farm. Its focus is on, they use the word gastronomy. I'll just the, the phrase good food, mm -hmm. seated table, farm to table, and on community. And I thought the community had been built. We were house number three, so uh, it wasn't built. You were a pioneer. It was like, I said to Oscar, I showed him the pictures. I said, Oscar, I want to live there. And his response was, sure, I'll. Whatever you say, sure, I'll. I said, no, really, I want to live there. It took a year yeah. for us to get 10 months to get into communication with the developers. And then it took another six months to get down here because of COVID restrictions. We actually broke ground and paid for the house before seeing it, before being here. And there was a lot of synchronicity that went along with this. It really, really, really went along with it. For instance, they talked about how they were raising money for an alternative school in Puerto Cayo for the local people. And when I looked, the architect of this school, and I don't mean the physical architect, I mean the educational architect. It's a gentleman, and I can't remember his name, from Brazil, who's building these schools around South America for American framework, I would say they're Montessori on steroids, mm -hmm. grounded in sustainability and very project oriented. So I did some research into what he was doing. And I turned to Oscar. I said, gee, Oscar, I said, gee, this all sounds familiar. I could have written it. Oh, wait, I did write this three years ago. <laughs> I wrote this for XQ Super School. This is like almost identical. So I sent it to one of the co-founders and I said, Sean, I said, here's the synchronicity on this. And he goes, oh, my God. And then when we got down here, we stayed in this house where we are right now, Wendy and David. And I'm sitting at brunch. I'm sitting at brunch one day. I'm scrolling through my open tabs. And all of a sudden, from 2018, Achim, from 2018, I find this article that Wendy had written about building sustainable communities around farms. I had bookmarked it then. So there were a lot of things that kind of fell into place, but neither of us had any roots in Ecuador. At one level, it was impulse. At another level, I would say, you asked about the, you brought up the notion of magic. Yeah. This particular bay absolutely has magic in it. And this particular bay that is out here in Puerto Cayo is the end point almost the end point for the whales that come from Antarctica up before they to calve and give birth before they go back. So there is something very magical here. And then it's like talking to people, it's like with all the chaos in the U.S., it's like, and if need be, we have our escape plan. Now, I'm going back to a moment a few minutes ago as you were talking you're blessed to have a companion named Oscar. You've been right. together for a long time. And my hunch is not everybody has an Oscar who says, sure, let's build a house in Ecuador. But describe, and I've met Oscar, and I think you two have just on the outside navigated a, a marvelous relationship where you get both get to be who you are. That's my sense. Yes. Would you describe that to our listeners? Like, how do you have a relationship where you can say to your partner, 
I want to go to Ecuador and build this house. And he says, sure, let's do it. I don't think he thought I was being serious. <laughs> no, I, first of all, you're absolutely right. I have a partner who is willing to take the chances. And I think the point at which it convinced him was very early on when we first got together and I walked in his house and his house was all white. Over a period of a year to two years, I transformed it from a house to a home. And I think, and he talks about that also. It's like, I think at some fundamental level, it was like, that's where he came to trust my instincts on big decisions. This is called the My Fourth Act Podcast. And I hope the listeners can hear you've had multiple acts already. <laughs> and more acts are presenting themselves. Yes. So what I'm curious about, as a visionary, do you envision other things? Do you just let them evolve? Are there things you want to do that you've never done before you go, this is the time to do it? Or how does Ellie think about the future? You know, it's interesting, Akeem, because the whole aspect we haven't talked about was my pioneering lacrosse in Northern California and learning about the differences between men and women in sports and being one of the pioneers behind Title IX, which is a whole other avenue. We this. didn't talk about it because I didn't know that. So oh, can we take yeah. a few minutes to talk about that? We can, but it's like you asked me the question of how these things emerge. Yeah. So the lacrosse, I played lacrosse growing up. I was privileged to play in a public high school because I had a teacher who was on the U.S. women's lacrosse team, and I fell in love with the sport. At Bentley College, one of the kids there came to me and said, hey, we were going to start lacrosse at Bentley. Would you be our advisor? I said, if I can coach, I will. Now, this was men's lacrosse. So I proceeded to coach men's lacrosse at the university level in the early 80s. Fast forward to when I got to California in the early 90s, closer to the year 2000, I get a Christmas letter from a friend saying, oh, our son, Addison, who's a hockey goalie, is going to play lacrosse in high school. I, honest to God, innocently said, oh, that was my sport. I actually coached a bunch. Within an hour, I am getting emails saying, we need you. We need your help. And I started a program at Woodside High School. I started a program at Sacred Heart Prep in Menlo, um, uh, Menlo Park in California. And the first year, the girls couldn't get it together to have their own team. And so because of Title IX, they got to play on the boys' team, on the men's team. It was fascinating to see what I ended up calling it was raging estrogen versus yeah. raging testosterone. The estrogen needed to talk. The testosterone needed to be physical and touch each other and punch. And the estrogen needed to, if anything happened around them, it was like, oh my God, what did I do? What did I do? And the boys, anything happened around them, it's his fault, blaming it on somebody else. So it's like learning to navigate coaching of two fundamentally different styles was fascinating. And I really, really came to believe that the differences between men and women is much more biological than we give it credit for. It's hormonal. It has to do with the hormones. Makes sense to me. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's like everybody wants to say, oh, it's nature versus nurture. And it's like, yeah, nature has a lot to do with it. And you can support boys in learning how to be senior to the impulses. And you can coach girls to say, excuse me, you do not have the luxury feeling sorry for yourself. Get back in the game and let it go. So it was so revealing for me. But yeah, I and then I worked with kids in the more vulnerable communities. So it's always coming back to it's always been this body, mind, and spirit without my knowing it. And uh, I get that. And I feel like the through line of the conversation is you were open to what was emerging and you paid it. Exactly. And you ran with it. Exactly. Yeah. Which is powerful. Let's just vision a year from now. And, you know, the world is messed up. But if we think of Ellie and Oscar life choices, let me just paint this. So I'm curious, is Ellie going to continue to spend most of her time in the Cape, but also part of the year in Ecuador? Is she going to keep going back to San Francisco? Is she going to start photographing in Ecuador, like what she's doing in on the Cape? Like what's percolating for you? It's all TBD, to be determined. Yeah. It's like I tell people, it's like, like you said, I'm working hard to allow it to unfold. That brings us full circle back to the relationship with Oscar and I. Yeah. Is that when we met and we got together, our mantra was allowing it to unfold. And I think right now it's about allowing it to unfold. It's like here, it's important to us that we build community with the local people. Yeah. Uh, We didn't come to Ecuador to hang out with Americans solely. So, I can't tell you, yes, I will go back to the Cape. The Cape has like a giant piece of my heart. San Francisco, we may let go of within the next two years. We're working in that. We just have more to dissolve, you know, in terms of furniture and stuff like that. Sure. As you know, as you move, yeah, it's a big project. Where this is going to take us, I don't know. I don't know. I know that there's more traveling we want to do. You know, we have friends all over the the planet. We'll continue building more friendships around there and focusing on what does it mean to be a productive global citizen. I think that's at the core of all of it. Beautiful. Because you are a creator, you have a website where people can check out your art and your work. Would you kindly let our listeners know where they can take a look at the stuff that you create? Yeah, my website is L-E-K-E-L-L-E-E-K.com. That has a whole bunch of my art. And then also I need to see what my Facebook is L-E-K, and that has a lot of my art. You are on Instagram as well. And I am Instagram, and that's L-E-K creates on Instagram. And creates has E on the end. Yes. I think that's, I can't, you know, you can't always get to it, but it's L-E-K and anybody can reach me on the website or you can reach me on Facebook. Easy peasy. On Facebook, I have other things that I post that are designed to give people pause in the world because I think that's what we need more than anything yeah. right now. I so appreciate this, Achim. Well, thank, thank you for the gift of this conversation. I uh, helps me appreciate even more who you are and and how you navigate life. It's an inspiration. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com 
and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.